So, we started out in this topic of the purity and unity of the church. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the summary before we get, before we get, um, before we get going here. The summary is this. Well, background. No church is perfect, right? Okay. No church is perfect, and the purity of the church would be working for greater, you know, for, to make the church better and better. There's always something wrong with the church, but there are always good things, too. So we want to work for the purity of the church, make it better and better. But when you do that, then sometimes the church splits, and then it splits again and splits again, because some people think you should do more of this and less of that and be more restrictive. So then you also want to work for the unity of the church. And the goal of the lesson is going to say the Lord wants us to work both for the unity and the purity of the visible church. Unity means unity with other true churches. And purity means making the church better and better. And those two sometimes are intention. And we see it, for instance, in churches who have struggled with more liberal tendencies. The Episcopal Church, for instance, in the United States or worldwide is going through this struggle now. And you see it in the news headlines a lot where uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States ordained a homosexual bishop, the conservative churches in the Bible-believing churches among the Episcopalians objected to that. They wanted to pull out. Other people said, well, wait a minute, don't split the church. So they want to say work for unity. But then other people said, no, it's, it's too far gone. We'll never bring it back. We want to work for purity. You see the, the tension there. And uh, recently within the state of Virginia now, oh, what a handful, six, ten conservative, maybe 12, Episcopal churches in Virginia have won significant court battles to keep their property while they withdraw from the denomination. So they're saying, well, we, we worked at unity for so long, but you guys are too far gone from the true gospel. So in order to preserve the purity of the church, we're not going to be part of the Episcopal church in the United States. And their system is you've got to be under the leadership of some bishops and archbishops in their political system. So they found some bishops in Rwanda and Uganda who were very Bible-believing. They said, hey, we'll be part of your church. So they're part of the Anglican mission to America. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So, so their, their way of preserving the unity is find some other oversight from other worldwide Anglican churches and, uh, and that to preserve the purity too. So there's always that. That tension. And um, some of you have come from Baptist backgrounds, and Baptists of various sorts have gone through different changes and divisions and splits where the leadership of the church becomes more liberal, and then people say, well, we can't strive for the unity anymore. We've got to go to purity and, and have a more pure church. All right, so that's the, that's the background. So, um, first of all, we started last week talking about the fact that there are more pure and less pure churches. I wonder, I wonder if we can see that board. And I'm going to draw a diagram up here. Can you see this? Or could somebody help me lift this up? Maybe we'll just, we'll just put it up on the podium. Thank you, David. Okay, so there are more pure and less pure churches. So we have this diagram. We have false churches. And there are true churches. And then among true churches, <clears throat> there can be more pure 
and less pure churches. So, uh-oh, did we, blo- we blocked you from seeing? Let's lift it back down. Well, I, let me draw on it here for a second. So the, the question is, among more pure and less pure churches, you know, you could say we could measure this according to doctrine. Is the doctrine faithful to the Bible? Or does it become, over here, churches becoming more liberal and they begin to deny some of the Bible, but they're still preaching that you have to trust in Jesus as your Savior, but they start to compromise on some of the truth of the Bible, and then they're compromising on more things, and they're saying that, oh, there are other ways to God besides trusting in Jesus. How far do you go over this way before you slip into a false church? See, So on doctrine, you could measure that. But you know there are other ways of measuring that, so that you can have churches that have very pure doctrine, and everybody signs on the dotted line, but they don't care for anybody. They're just horribly unfriendly. And you try to visit the church, and nobody talks. So you'd say, evaluate them doctrine, they're way over here, but evaluating them on love and care for others, they're, man, they're just failing. Does that make sense? And um, maybe that really pure doctrine church isn't doing anything on evangelism. Nobody's reaching out. See, and so you say, oh, the way over here on evangelism, they're not a false church, but they're doing zero in terms of bringing people to the Lord. Now, I'm going to mention Dudley here, too. Just Dudley, can you stand up for a second? I just found Dudley's moved here from Albuquerque. He's a flight instructor at Scottsdale Airport, and uh, or Air, what, Scottsdale, whatever it is. But Dudley was the evangelism director at an evangelical free church in Albuquerque. And one of the things he did, he just showed me an article about it, was um, a race course in the church parking lot. But it wasn't high-speed race. It was precision driving race with slalom driving and things. And uh, that's evangelism. It's an outreach, see? And he said, you know, Scottsdale Bible Church parking lot is a lot bigger than the one we use here. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So there's evangelism. You can measure it that way. Or you could measure it on what about uh, caring for the poor? Does a church have an outreach to care for others and care for the needy? And, and maybe a church, you could see maybe a church is just way over here on, in care for the poor, but they might not have very good doctrine. They've got all sorts of... They don't know what they're teaching. Do you see what I'm saying? So a church can be strong or weak on various categories. And we see that in examples in the New Testament. Let's lift this back down now. Thanks, John. So it can be strong or weak in various categories. We see this in the New Testament. Paul's letters to the Philippians and Thessalonians show they were relatively free from doctrinal or moral problems. We mentioned this last week. Paul, he talks about the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And then the Philippians sent him help for his needs once and again. That church was just a great joy to Paul. But on the other hand, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. See, a lot of problems in the churches in Galatia. There was false teaching coming in. So there were churches varied. And you can see that according to all these different epistles. The church at Corinth had a lot of strengths in some areas, but it had a lot of weaknesses in their conduct in other areas. So, uh, so we've got this diagram. There are, there are more pure and less pure churches, and among true churches, there are more pure and less pure. And then, uh, and then of course, there's that whole other category of false churches. Now, what, how do we define these two, the purity and unity? The purity of the church is the degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct. 
and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church, doing what the church is meant to do. Okay? And when you move to a new area, so Dudley moves here to Scottsdale. He's looking, what, should we go to Scottsdale Bible Church or should we go to some other church? He's looking around. And you want a true church, but then among true churches, some people say, well, we're looking for really good music. Other people say, all the teaching, the Bible teaching, that's what we're looking for. Other people say, no, this church is too big. We want a smaller church where we feel part of a family and we feel like we can fit in and feel cared for. So people look for different things. But the unity of the church would be its degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. Now, that can be within the church. And, you know, Scottsdale Bible Church, the Lord just given us a lot of blessing. There aren't a lot of controversies and factions and people getting mad at each other and leaving. And uh, That's just a, a wonderful uh, blessing that, uh, that God has given the church for years. But other churches uh, do split off under over trivial things sometimes. Um, and then there's another unity factor. How much are we demonstrating unity with other true churches in the area. See, now I think of Daryl Delhousay, who was our pastor here, just having a wonderful heart for supporting other Bible-believing churches. And people, when we came here, people would say to us, you know, Daryl, he's amazing because he would... Uh, he would hear of a new pastor coming to the area to try to plant a church, and he'd bring him up to the front of Scottsdale Bible Church and say, well, here is Jim, uh, Joe, Jim Smith, and he's starting a church down at this place of Scottsdale, and this is what kind of church it is, and maybe some of you would want to go help him out. That's, a really, that's demonstrating the unity of the gospel where there were other people that, in the unity of the church where he could help, and then he'd let you know, Jim say something about that. And, would support other ministries as well. So that's the unity of a degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. So now, what are the signs of a more pure church? And I've got 12 of them listed here, and you may think of some others, but number one, biblical doctrine or right preaching of the word. That comes out of the Reformation. Calvin and Luther were very concerned about that. And then number two, proper use of the sacraments or ordinances. And the Reformation historical background to that is the, both the Lutherans and the Reformed people who uh, were, were objecting to the Roman Catholic Church were saying, look, um, you're teaching that baptism and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, you're teaching that these people save, these things save people. You're saying that salvation comes through going through these physical actions of being at the Mass or being baptized. And that's not the way people are saved. That's a misuse of the ordinances or the sacraments. And then they would say, you're, you're, you're giving baptism to everybody who walks in the door, who happens to be born in the village, whether or not there's faith on the part of the family or, or, or uh, any kind of attendance at church or anything. And, of course, uh, that's not a right use of, of uh, baptism. Um, uh, n- number three, right use of church discipline. I cannot tell you, I cannot even remember all the times I've heard of a story where there was blatant, known sin on the part of someone who was a member of a church, and it wasn't taken care of, it wasn't disciplined, and it brought reproach on the church so that it hindered the gospel. Do you, have you, do you know of that, where people have said, well, you know, I used to go to such and such a church. This ha- I heard this a month ago, I was talking to somebody. So I used to go to such and such a church, and, but there was so much scandal on the part of the behavior, in this case, of the pastor, but it can happen with other cases, and, and it wasn't taken care of, and I just didn't, you know, I just, I, um, I couldn't go to that church anymore, and now this guy's going to no church. 
Or I remember another time, long time ago, well, I'd never go to such and such a church, and he was talking about the church I was going to, because I worked with so-and-so, and he goes to that church. <laughs> well, something's going on wrong there, see, so there's not a right use of discipline so that the, the, the reputation of, of the gospel and the reputation of the church is being harmed if there's not a right use of, of church discipline. Genuine worship. We should be worshiping God together. In your heart, are you really worshiping God in the times when the church sings praise and worship? Or is it just routine and just going through the motions? Effective prayer, individually, in groups. And now our church has started an all-church prayer meeting, too. Um, is there effective prayer? Are we seeing answers to prayer? Number six, effective witness. Is the church growing through people becoming Christians, new, new Christians? Or is it just people moving and transferring from other churches? Um, effective fellowship. Is there a sense of welcoming into the family and caring for one another in the church? Or do people go for months and years and just still feel like strangers and left out? Biblical church government. I, can, I, that's, I can't say that without thinking. The example that came to mind one time, I spoke in a church. Um, I'm not going to say where it was. It was in the middle of the week one night. And the pastor came up afterward, and he said, Oh, I really like that talk. Didn't you like that, honey? He turned to his wife. And, uh, and she said, Yeah, that was really good. And she said, he said to his wife, Why don't you write him a check for so-and-so, such and such amount, and for a big amount, I mean, more than I thought I deserved. What did that tell me? The pastor's wife was the treasurer. <laughs> Yee! And the way they determined how much to pay a speaker was the pastor on the spot said, write him a check for such and such. I just, <laughs> I did take the check, but I, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going to meddle in their church government. But, <laughs> but I would say that's inappropriate church government because there's no accountability. All right. For, and and uh, the temptation to misuse of funds was 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 very great. Um, uh, spiritual power in ministry. Um, when the word of God is preached, is there is your is your spirit touched? Is, is are you built up as a Christian? Is your faith increased, or is it just all head knowledge? When people pray for one another, is the Holy Spirit really at work and touching people and answering prayer? When worship is happening, uh, in your spirit, are you genuinely offering worship to God or not? Is it really spiritual power? Number 10, personal holiness of life among the members. Or is there really no teaching on patterns of holiness and people's lives look just like the world? Um, what about care for the poor? Or are people just contented, not caring for others? What about um, number 12, love for Christ? Just in conversations with people in the church, are you sensing that there is really a love for Christ in people's hearts? Well, I'll tell you what I want to do. Let me, let me just see what I've got in the next. Okay, so here it says we should work for the purity of the visible church. See, Jesus says uh, he is uh, working to sanctify the church. Husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5.25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So to sanctify means to make more holy, or I suppose to move the church along that path of more toward more and more purity. And, and Jesus 
is at work, I think, sanctifying the church, improving it, uh, working in it, as it is obedient to him, to make it more and more like what it should be. Uh, Colossians 1.28, Paul's goal is not just that people pray, pray, and trust in Christ, but he was wanting to move them to maturity. So we, he says, him we proclaim, that's Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's goal was when people died and came to the end of their life and they came before the throne of God, Paul could stand there and say, look, here's a person who became a believer through my ministry and here's a person, and these are mature believers. See, they've, they've grown, mature in Christ. Uh, but uh, working for the purity of the church also includes silencing false doctrine because Paul says in Titus 1.11, uh, these people who are teaching you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul's saying to Titus, don't give the pulpit to them. You have a doctrinal control over what is taught in the church. And if, and if uh, false teaching begins to creep in, then you exclude it. Um, and uh, Jude 1.3, uh, Jude says he wants you to... He wants them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, or Jude 3, not 1-3, because um, there was only one chapter. Uh, to contend for the faith, that is, there are always attacks against it. And some of my work, some of my writing is saying, no, this is not the right doctrine, this idea, oh, open theism, for instance, that God doesn't know the future, or um, other things. Uh, people are saying you can be saved by other means than through trusting in Christ and other things. Well, then we try to defend the church against false doctrine. So we should work for the purity of the visible church. Now, before I go on to unity, here's what I want you to do. This is a little exercise. Can you take that list of 12 items, signs of a more pure church, and on a scale of 1 to 10, this is not for anybody to see, this is just for yourself, write down where you think Scottsdale Bible Church is. Could you do that? I'm not going to collect this. I'm not going to show it to anybody else. But I just put 10 on uh, biblical doctrine. <laughs> With special reference to our class. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But, but 10 would be, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's the best that you know of. And one would be, it's a horrible, horrible failure. Just rank 1 to 10, those 12 categories. Could you do that? We'll just take a few minutes uh, and let you do that. Oh, if you are a visitor here, you could, you, you could do this with respect to your own church. Okay, now I want you to draw a line down the right, of that, right side of that. And I want to do this again with regard to this class. Okay? And look, on the proper use of the sacraments or ordinances, you could give us a zero because we don't do baptism or the Lord's Supper in here, and that's not going to bother me because that's not our purpose. But... Um, but go ahead and, and just see what you think, just honestly, with respect to this class. Maybe you should put does not apply on sacraments or ordinances. Everybody, anybody still writing? All done? You know, look over that list, especially with regard to the church, and just put a mark by the one or two that you ranked lowest for Scottsdale Bible Church.
And here's what I want you to consider. Could it be that God would like you to start to do something about that? That is, if you said we're not doing very well in evangelism, then could it be that God's put that awareness on your mind so that you could start asking people, where do I start to help that? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? That this, this exercise can be useful if it points out areas of need that you see in a church. And I'm, I, don't want, I don't want to talk about any of those things publicly because I don't want this to be a forum for criticizing things that people are grumbling about here or there. But I think as a private exercise, this can be really helpful because it can show us areas where we say, you know what, we hadn't thought about that, but we're not doing very much of this or that. And uh, so I just ask you to think about that and think that if you're wondering where can I plug in or where can I be of use in the church, well, maybe here's an area where there are one of those areas where you could see there's a need for something more to be done. Does that make sense? Am I, any, any comp, I don't want you to tell me about Scottsdale Bible Church on any of these categories, but, but, but the process. Do you want to say anything about that? Is, that? is that helpful? Okay, and then with regard to the class, similarly, um, there are some things we're just not going to do. We're not going to start doing baptisms and the Lord's Supper, for instance. And we're just not going to do much in terms of worship. When I started this class, I was told by the people who asked, in the pastoral staff who asked me, they said, we don't want this to become a substitute for church. So I don't think there's an objection that we sing a hymn at the end, but let's not start singing a bunch of hymns and becoming a little church service here. Okay, so we intentionally don't do that. Uh, but there are other things um, that I'm wondering about, and I'm, I'm especially wondering maybe about... Um, reaching out and caring for other people who come and seeing if there are places where people can network and tie in. Is that an area where maybe we need to be giving more attention? That might be. Okay. So, all right. You okay with that? Yep, Bob? Yeah. Yeah, good. Bob has been so excellent at when he sees a need, seeking somebody to get plugged in to start meeting the need. And um, uh, that's why the class has gone so so well in terms of the the things functioning so smoothly. So go, Bob, say, what's your email at? Bob.Kane. ChristianEssentialsSBC.com website. Can, there's an email link for Bob Kane, but it's bob.kane at b.kane at cox.net. b.kane, C-A-I-N, at cox.net. And uh, if you say, um, we need better food. Well, I don't know how you could get better than the eggs we had this morning. But if you say, we need better food, Bob will email you back and say, would you like, what Sunday would you like to bring food? <laughs> okay, Good. Well, uh, that's just a helpful thing, saying how can, we, how can we grow. And I'll tell you, Scottsdale Bible Church is just so wonderful in so many ways. I do not mean this in any way to prompt criticism of the church. But there are always areas where people can say, well, you know, I see a need. So, okay. Now, 
we talk about the purity of the church, but then what about the unity of the church? There is an actual spiritual unity in Christ. Uh, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is at Corinth. So he's writing, Corinth is in southern Greece. He's writing to this church in south southern part of modern-day Greece. He's writing to this church, and he's saying to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So they're called to be saints together with the worldwide church throughout the uh, you know, Mediterranean world, throughout the Roman Empire at that time. So there's a spiritual unity. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3 to 6, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Okay, and because of this actual unity, believers are commanded to live in unity with one another, to avoid those who sow disunity. So Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Romans 16, 17 to 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Now, this is interesting because Paul has never been to the church at Rome. He's writing to them saying, I'm going to come and visit you, and here's the gospel that I preach, and it turns out to be this marvelous book of Romans. But he, even though he's never been there, he knows that there are going to be in every church people who are divisive. So I appeal to you to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So, now, here's the question. Someone who criticizes some doctrinal position that was taken in the sermon, is that person working for the purity of the church? That's a good thing. Or is that person wrongfully causing divisions, harming the unity of the church? That's a bad thing. And that's a, that requires mature judgment, doesn't it? Um, and it's a, it's a hard decision. When I've taught in seminary classes year after year after year with students from dozens and dozens of different denominations, a lot of times the question comes up, shall I stay in the denomination that I was brought up in? I don't agree with some of these things they're doing, but God has put me there and I have a ministry. What should I do? What should I do? And there's always that question. You stay and work for the purity of the church, or do you leave and, 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 and say, well, I, I, I can't be in this church. It's, it's so impure that I have to go to another church and we'll work for unity there. And that's, that's always it's a hard question to decide. And when we've been to England a number of times, that's the constant question with people in the Church of England. The Church of England is not, near, it's not nearly as liberal as the Episcopal Church in the United States, by and large, though the Episcopal Church in the United States has, very, has maybe 2,000 Bible-believing congregations, too. So there's a conservative wing, but there's a very, very ultra-liberal wing. Well, in the Church of England... There are many, many Bible-believing evangelical churches preaching the gospel faithfully week after week. But then there are all these more liberal colleges and seminaries and professors and, and churches. And do we stay or do we leave? Do we stay? Do we leave? And, and of course, that's a hard question. Um, and it isn't one that, uh, that anybody else can decide 
I suppose, for someone else, and maybe it depends on God's calling. But, but believers should live in unity with one another and avoid people who just wrongfully sow disunity. Maybe some of you in the past have been in churches where they're just divisive people. They're just going to criticize no matter what happens. And Paul says, avoid such people. And of course, you don't want to give them influence in the church where they bring more and more disunity. So we should work for the unity of the visible church. There are also commands to be separate. Oh, wait a second. I'm just going to say in that evangelical theological society, the society of professors uh, of Bible and theology that I'm part of in, across the United States, a few years ago, we had this question of, should we keep in our membership these people who are saying that God doesn't know the future choices of human beings, advocating open theism? Or should we kick them out of membership? And after a two-year process and lots of debate, see, people were on both sides. We need to keep the unity of the body. Let's not kick them out. No, we need to keep the purity of the body because they're teaching something so contrary to Scripture. And the unity and the purity were going back and forth. And in the end, we needed 67% vote to kick them out. And we got a 62.6% vote, and we didn't kick them out. Uh, so that was, a, but that was many people praying and talking and seeking the Lord's guidance on whether to allow that position within the organization. It came out kind of a messy solution, um, but the process, I think, was fair and was a good thing to be, to be struggling with. Okay, so we work for the unity and the purity, and it's a judgment call. It's a wise judgment call to know what to do in individual situations. Now, there are also commands to be separate, but here I'm going to criticize very, very, very conservative Protestant or evangelical groups. There are some groups that are so separate that, that they wouldn't have me come and teach there anyway um, because uh, they're separate from people who aren't separate from other people. And, um, and they're, they want to be so pure that they don't want contact with other people who have even little differences with them. And, but my point is here, there are commands in the New Testament to be separate, but they command separate... They never command separation from other true believers, but from unbelievers. So I do, not, I do not agree with people who say you have to separate from people who go to evangelistic crusades with wide denominational representation and things like that. There are some people who, maybe you've heard of people who won't support a Billy Graham crusade because Billy Graham involves a wide variety of church leaders on the platform. And also... If your church supports Billy Graham, then they don't want to have anything to do with you because you're not being separate from Billy Graham. All right, do you follow? Okay, so there's, and then I'm saying that that's going to the far other extreme. And Paul doesn't ever say that. He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I think that means you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. I think it probably has to do with other kinds of partnership where your life will be so determined by the life of the unbeliever, and you're just going to have different value systems. Um, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So he quotes the Old Testament. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I shall welcome you, and I will be a father to you. But that is with unbelievers. That doesn't say separate from other genuine believers, okay? And um, so then how, okay, so that's, do you want to talk about that for a minute before I go on to this next, next section about maintaining separation? 
I'm going to bring up the word fundamentalism, but in its more extreme form. More, more separatist fundamentalist groups in the United States, that isn't a word that I would use of, at least in the narrow sense, of Scottsdale Bible Church or of myself, though historically the, ver the word has a good heritage and it meant very good things, but it has come to be more narrowly used of groups that just want to be separate from true believers that they just differ with. Brian? I thought there was a verse somewhere that talks about uh, Paul was commanding them to be separate from a particular person, but do not treat him as an unbeliever. And I just don't know, rem I can't remember where it's at, but I was hoping maybe you do. And if yeah, you could address I do, that. but I can't remember where it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I'm just curious if... It has to do with church, it has to do with discipline. It's in 1 Corinthians. Where is it? It's in 1 Corinthians. It's in 1 Corinthians. Yeah. There may be a time that um, it may have to do with discipline where it, it um, I don't know, I can't deal with something I can't find and I should know it. Sorry. If you find it, ask me. Okay. Well, now, okay, let me go to one more thing before we come to the end here. The question is, if we're supposed to strive for the unity of the church, why are there so many different denominations? Haven't we failed the Lord in protecting the unity of the church because we've got all these different denominations? And that used to worry me. It doesn't worry me so much now, and I'll explain why. First, where did this come from? Well, there was only one church unified throughout the world with one church government until 1054. In 1054 AD, the Eastern Orthodox churches separated from the Western churches under the authority of the Pope. And so today, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Syrian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, all these Coptic Orthodox, all those churches are not under the authority of the Pope, and they're what we call Eastern Orthodox churches. So now you've got two groups of churches. Then, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle Church, and that led eventually to Martin Luther's excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church in 1521. He wanted to reform the church. He didn't want to step, but he was kicked out. All right, now we've got Lutheran churches and Catholic churches, and Orthodox churches. We've got three groups. Then about 1525, the Anabaptists began to form churches of believers only in Switzerland, and shortly after that in England. They started to say, you know what? We're going to start a church where not everybody who lives in, I'll say Scottsdale, not everybody who lives in Scottsdale is automatically a member of the Lutheran church. But... Um, we're only going to have members who personally confess their faith in Jesus Christ and are baptized. And that's going to be, it isn't automatically everybody who lives in the town. So all of a sudden, the Baptist church traditions started. And I remember Margaret and I, a few years ago, we were, a, I looked on the map and we were only a few miles away from Scrooby, S-C-R-O-O-B-Y, in England, a little village still today of about 200 people. And we went there and we saw the Church of England church, stone church still there, and then across the field we could see a farmhouse where there had previously been a farmhouse where separatists who became Baptists withdrew from the Church of England and started to meet on their own a church for believers only. And the way you got into the church is you were baptized by immersion, not as a child by sprinkling. 
And they were persecuted, not by the Catholics, by the Church of England. So they fled to Holland. And then they wanted to have a place for themselves. They came back to England, loaded up ship, and they sailed in 1620 to Plymouth Bay Colony. And they formed Massachusetts Colony eventually and started a new church in the new world. And Margaret's great, 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 great grandfather, William Brewster, was on that ship. Not William Brewster. Yes, William Brewster. One of these, the elder on the ship. So all of a sudden, Baptist churches begin to form for believers only. And then 1570, well, 1534, Parliament in England passed laws placing the Church of England outside the control of the Church of Rome, and then it was officially excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church in 1570. And then we've got lots of churches, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist, Reformed or Presbyterian, following John Calvin, and in the centuries following the Reformation, Protestantism split into hundreds of smaller groups. Somebody was talking, Bob was talking to me this morning about Missouri Synod back, background. Where are you, Bob? Yeah. And that, that was a, a certain, certain group, and the, but then there's the ELCA and there's the Wisconsin Synod, all these among Lutherans. So, and Baptists, American Baptists, Conservative Baptists, Baptist General Conference, which I came from, Southern Baptists, um, many other kinds of Baptists. Now, and hundreds of other denominations. Is this a good thing or not? My own thought of that is, I think there is some good to it, and it's the Lord's way of protecting us from a worldwide church government that would have too much power. So, um, what do you do about the unity of the church then? In Scottsdale, where there are other churches, or in the Phoenix area, where there are other churches that are preaching the gospel, we try from time to time to show unity with them by maybe cooperating if there's an evangelistic crusade in the city, by maybe having youth group functions together, by doing things in the high school uh, ministry together or at ASU together where students will come from different denominations and join. Maybe there'll be a fellowship of pastors together. Maybe they'll all support Phoenix Seminary. Who knows? So that apart from organizational unity, you can demonstrate unity by... Other, other ways, which I think still gives testimony to the fact that we're preaching the same gospel. And um, I think that's okay. So I, I don't know that the Lord has failed to, to continue to teach the purity of the, or work for the, the unity of the church. And why, why did the East and Orthodox separate from the Catholic Church? Okay, and so why did the... I'll, it was just, I'll just repeat it. Why did the Eastern Orthodox separate from the Catholic Church? The doctrinal reason had to do with a dispute over the relationship between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in the Trinity before creation. <laughs> and it's, it's a technical thing called the filioque clause that was added to the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And, uh, the, but, the, the, but people looking back on it say it really had to do with the authority of the Pope. And the Eastern churches didn't want to be subject to the Pope or the Bishop of Rome anymore. So there it is. The ESV Study Bible has a little article on Eastern Orthodoxy in the back of it. And it has an article on Roman Catholicism, and it has an article on Evangelical Protestantism, and one on Liberal Protestantism. So it'll all be there. Okay, now let's see. Why should someone leave a church? I think we're about out of time here. And my... 
This is all of a sudden not working. Let's just go to the next slide, Trent. Or Carol. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to let you look at that on the outline later. Uh, a separation, formation of separate organizations, I don't think that's such a bad thing. But no cooperation with other churches. You've got to have really serious differences before you'll do that. And no personal fellowship with other churches. Um, I don't... I mean, that's, that's a very extreme thing. And the only thing would be is if you're actually appearing to give uh, support to a church that's a false church and teaching a false gospel. And then why would, why would people ever separate from a church and go to another church? Um, if the church is becoming liberal, maybe people will be saying, well, is staying in it doing more harm than good? And is there any reasonable hope of change? Um, so those are just questions to ask, and, and you can think about that later. Um, so that's the end of the question of the church and its unity and purity. Um, Margaret and I have lived in various places. We travel to different places. We go, try to go to a church that believes the Bible and preaches the Bible. But we've ended up in different... We've been in part of an evangelical free church for a time. I was ordained in a Baptist General Conference church. I worked one summer as an intern in an Orthodox Presbyterian church which was very doctrinally pure except for its view of baptism, but they, they just let me be there anyway. Um, um, and we're part of an independent Bible church now, Scottsdale Bible Church. We were part of a Southern Baptist church at one time. Uh, we were part of another kind of Baptist church when we were in England and uh, part of a conservative Christian congregational church in Boston, Park Street Church. So lots of different kinds of churches just looking for a Bible-believing church where we can join in and be part of the fellowship of God's people in different denominations. And many, many of you have probably done that as well. Um, and while you're in the church, kind of look and see, can I work for the purity of the church? But can I also seek ways to demonstrate unity with other true believers in other churches so we continue to work both for the unity and the purity of the visible church? That's, that's where we are. Anything else? Maybe one more question or comment, Mary Jane? Oh, she found the verse. First Corinthians 5, what? Nine. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, but I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Okay, so Paul's saying there, if there's someone who's the town drunk and, and, and people see him coming to your home fellowship group all the time, they're thinking that's what Christians act like. So there should be some discipline exercised. That's so... I don't know if that's what you were talking about, but at least that would be that verse. Okay. Hmm. Yep, Dave. I think one of the things that's happening in, in our in our technological world is the church, I don't know if this is sounds so slap me aside the head if I'm wrong, but it seems like the church is coming at us in a lot of different ways, through the internet, through yep. books, through the yep. radio, through TV. Yep. And I'm wondering... As, as we all read things, read books, listen to people, 
with from who knows where. How do we discern who we're going to listen to? Where, yeah. Is there a line that you draw somewhere? Um, for example, there's a, a, a well-known person in the reform world who's a preterist. And I'm thinking, hmm, I'm not sure I agree with that, so should I listen to him? Because that would, that would open up, I would think, a lot of different things in the views that he presents. And, and I don't know where to draw the line. Obviously, there are very fundamental things mm-hmm. that you need to say that's wrong mm-hmm. in, in the liberal church. But am, am I making any sense? So this man would think that all the prophecies about the second coming of Christ have already been fulfilled and Christ isn't really coming back in bodily form? Well, this person thinks we're in the thousand years now. Okay. Well, that form it wouldn't seem to me to be too harmful because the person might believe a lot of good things. And my question there is, does the doctrine have influence, have significant impact on other doctrines or on how you live your Christian life? I can't tell in advance on that one. But if it doesn't, then I'd say it's not too serious. But if it begins to influence a bunch of other doctrines and how you live your Christian life, then I'd say, well, there's harm there. So I wouldn't support that ministry, for instance. It seems there's a book that I won't name that's very popular right now and is top of Amazon and flowing through the churches and things. And, yep. Um, and it touches people's hearts. It's the shack. Yes. Okay, and I haven't read it yet, so I've got I've heard a whole bunch of criticisms and and I've heard a whole bunch of praise for it. And uh, I think what's happening is it touches something deep in people's hearts in one of these areas having to do with love of Christ and and God's love for them and probably caring for them. But it has other things having to do with the Trinity and the nature of God and the nature of Christ that are doctrinally incorrect. So how do you evaluate a book that's got a mixture of truth and error? I think you evaluate it by saying there's a mixture of truth and error. And just honestly say, well, I can be thankful for some good in it, but also, no, there's harm in it too. How do you evaluate a movie that teaches some good family values but then teaches some wrong doctrine? You say it's a mixed mixed review. So, all right. Well, I love this hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Because it says, in the midst of all the troubles, the trials, the tribulation, the Lord is protecting his church. And, and there are saints, that he, Christians, that he raises up. Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up how long? So that's you, watching for the purity and the unity of the church on earth during our lifetime. So let's sing this, and then we'll be done. And see you September 7th. <laughs>